This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and I have got three of my favourites in the studio with me today, Dr Malice, Lolly Doc and Miss Medic. Plus we've got two extra special guests with us this morning who I'll tell you about in just a minute. Massive week in medicine this week. Um, as I'm sure all of you listening are aware, um, Monday brought this bizarre thunderstorm asthma outbreak, which took us all by surprise, particularly those working in the emergency department. So we are going to talk about that this morning. We're going to hear from Lolly Doc, who was in the emergency department, and Miss Medic, who's been in her GP practice this week, um, and and dealing with all the consequences from it. So we're going to hear what actually happened, why there was such an outbreak uh, and why it took us all by surprise and what we need to know going into the future. So that's going to be our first topic of conversation this morning. Then we're going to speak with our two very special guests today, Dr Debbie Hocking, who's a clinical psychologist, and Dr Samantha Loy, who's a psychiatrist. And they are volunteers at the Asylum Seeker and Refugee Health Hub, which has only been around for a few months, actually. And they're also looking for new health practitioner helpers to um, get on board to provide pro bono work for our asylum seekers and refugees. So we're going to talk to them all about how the Health Hub came about and what help they need need. And then finally, to round out the hour, we're going to talk to Dr Malice about what it's like for people who work in the field of asylum seeker and refugee health and and what the consequences are of working in the trauma field in terms of self-care as a healthcare practitioner. So grab a cup of coffee, don't go away and join us for the hour as we fill it in with laughs and more. Three, triple, ah. Good morning, good morning, Miss Medic. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too. You could be mistaken to think this was the middle of winter today, not our last... Is this our last show? This is our last yeah, show, our last this show. particular radiotherapy team, yeah. but there's still about three more weeks of radiotherapy. No, so it doesn't the... feel quite right that we're wrapping things up and it feels like the middle of winter. I know. Bah humbug. I I'm not loving this weather. Yeah. Lolly Doc, hello. Hi. You look underslept. I am poorly slept. I've been burning the candles at both ends. Party, party? No, work, work. Oh. Um, burning the candle at both ends is a weird idiom because it doesn't actually mean what we think it means. Did what you know? do you think it means? Well, so obviously it's a literal thing that if you burn the candle at both ends it goes quicker and it used to mean that um, you were a spendthrift. So if you had a candle that you could burn at both ends, oh, yes. um, you just could, you know, had money to burn. Throw basically. your money away. Yeah, yeah literally. So not, literally. So it had nothing to do with um, staying up late and, um, you know. How do you know these that. things? I don't know. <laughs> I just I just make them up on the spot. Well, yeah, I believe that's it. Right. It's I believe not, it. Yeah, it's not knowledge. It's just <laughs> tomfoolery. Dr. Malice, good morning to you. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm excited. Are you? What are you yes. excited about? I think our two guests have got such a cutting-edge topic that uh, is... And especially following up from last time we were together with Martin and his book, 
mm. on neuroscience and mm. how it applies in the real world. And I just uh, really on a buzz. It's, it's a great thing that you're on a buzz, me too. And so that we have lots of time for them, I'm going to cut off this chit-chat and get chit-chat <laughs> and get straight into the nitty-gritty of what happened this week in the field of health because it was huge with the thunderstorm asthma outbreak. Lolly Doc, I hear you were in the emergency department when this all erupted. We um, had what we call a code brown situation in uh, the hospital I work at. <laughs> is that what and, I think? And it's, it's lit- <laughs> literally and figuratively what it sounds like. Um, but it is a real code. It is a real thing. Is it? Yeah. It is. Um, it, is it really? I don't is. know whether to yeah, believe yeah. you. No, no, it is. It's a, <laughs> it, 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 it means a disaster. The and in the fan. It, yes, exactly <laughs> right. Also, wow. Yeah. This is what I like about you. Subtlety. Yeah. <laughs> I think where parents of young children also use it uh, to mean something else in terms of nappy issues going that's on. That's where my mind's going. Yeah, that's mm. it. But it is a real code. Yeah, you're right. It, it, I back you up on this. Thanks very much. And um, <laughs> But it was a nappy issue for all of us. <laughs> so um, it might be worth going back to the beginning of what asthma is just very, very briefly because I think that's an important um explanation for our listeners. So mm-hmm. asthma is very common. Lots of people have asthma and um, Miss Medic, you'd see asthma on a regular basis day mm-hmm. in, day out in your practice and I certainly do in mine as well. And um, we know that asthma is a, a complicated illness but it's essentially um, an airway or uh, the lungs which are um, highly reactive to um, external stimuli. Now that can be sport, it can be air, can be pollens, it can be all sorts of things. Um, And the airways react in an abnormal way and they become inflamed and they constrict um, and can cause breathing problems. And that's that's essentially asthma in a nutshell. There's a few other bits and pieces to it. So it's a a bit of a, uh, if you like, an immune response um, to a stimulus of some sort. With dire consequences, yeah. I mean, death yeah. is a possibility as so, has happened this week. Absolutely. So we still have asthma deaths in Australia every year, um, and although they've decreased dramatically, um, but there will be people who present with quite extreme asthma to the point where they stop breathing um, and deaths do occur. And unfortunately, we've had five deaths uh, this week, um, which will kind of, I guess, unravel a little bit over time as to whether that was directly due to asthma or whether there was something else going on. But Mm. these were young people, um, 20 to 32, um, with another four still in intensive care. So it's still... So it was a big deal. It's still going on. It is still going on. Uh, So what happened on Monday was... I'm I'm going to try and avoid, like, cliches like perfect storm, and it was a barometer (gasps) of, like... Oh, I love these. Yeah, the media love these little things this Mm. week. Um, So what happens normally with... So it's a a um, pollen-mediated event, essentially. So... In uh, spring and early summer, um, it's lots of pollens around, obviously with grasses, and particularly ryegrass is is the most common and the most um, frustrating for pollen sufferers. And normally to actually absorb pollen into your lungs, um, they need to be really small sizes. And normal pollen is... The pollen does. The pollen does, yeah. yeah. So 20 to 60 microns is what a normal pollen size is, but to get into the lungs it needs to be 0.1 micron. So it needs to be much smaller. And the way thunderstorm asthma is thought to trigger asthma events is that um, these pollen or rye grasses become super soaked uh, in both uh, fluid and water, um, but there's also air entrained within 
the storm cells and they kind of explode the pollens basically. Um, they swell and they just explode and you get this overwhelming environmental release of, of pollens much more than usual. Right, so the, thund- the way that the thunderstorm caused this is that it, it broke the pollen into smaller pieces and therefore that pollen could get into the lungs. Yep. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, so one of the... One of the uh, I mean, you've probably seen these pretty photos of, you know, cumulonimbus clouds that sort of tower multiple kilometres. You know, they that's essentially the way the air's travelling. So the pollen was sucked up into these clouds, brought up, um, they saturated with water and then they just exploded and released pollen everywhere. So people with asthma um, or with hay fever... Uh, or with other what we call atopic illnesses, so allergic-type illnesses, uh, were prone. But also people who'd never experienced asthma before ingested large... or not ingested, inhaled large amounts of pollen that, uh, you know, exceeded most what we see on a daily basis and And developed symptoms. So this is what I also heard this week, was that a lot of the people who had these asthma attacks had never had asthma before. How does that happen I don't understand that bit. So going back to what we were saying about asthma as a as an illness, it, you require a stimulus and, and your body has a reaction to that. Now, most people with asthma have got, a, I guess, an overdeveloped sense of that, but you can also get reactions to um, environmental substances from not having asthma in the first place, not being predisposed. So an example would be, let's just say you're in a... Uh, I guess a fire, for example, and you inhaled smoke, that's a, an airway irritant and you'd have a reaction to that. And much the same way if you get a, an overburden of pollen in your lungs, you'll have a reaction even though you don't have asthma. And is that why it had such significant consequences? Because people didn't know what was happening to them if they've never had asthma before? So I think this, this was... Um, I, I'm just mindful of the fact that people suffered during this event, so I don't yeah. want to kind of, um, I guess depersonalise it a little yeah. bit. Well, one of the issues for me, one of the interesting things for me was how rapidly this all unfolded. Mm. So I think what we experienced in, in, the, in the health sector was um, a huge number of influx of patients in a short space of time, particularly patients who were naive to the illness and so mm. didn't know how to treat it at home. Mm. There were obviously people who knew what to do and had already started taking their Ventolin puffers at home before we saw them. But we had a lot of people with airway difficulties and not being able to breathe is a fairly traumatic and unpleasant experience. And so we saw a lot of people who, in a short space of time. How did you cope in ED? How did it cope? So, uh, look, I, I think the interesting thing for Victoria in this event is um, seeing what our services are capable of doing. And to give you an uh, it's worth painting a very quick picture of what happened that night from our point of view, because in fact, I think it's a whole hospital and whole system response that that mattered, and Miss Medic would understand this as well, because it wasn't just emergency departments that were involved. So there was um, a very rapid influx of patients. So, for example, in the hospital I work in, we saw an extra. So we would see two hundred and fifty to two hundred and seventy patients on a day. Um, that's normal for us. Um, we saw four hundred and fifty patients in a thirty-hour period. Wow. And we had 190 patients between the hours of 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. So that's a full day's worth of yeah. unwell breathing problem patients um, in a four and a half hour period. And that was replicated in all the hospitals right around Victoria. And it was also replicated in a lot of GP clinics mm-hmm. um, and in the community as well. So 
all the ambulances were used up. <laughs> um, the fire brigade, the police, non-emergency crews were all involved in transporting people. Uh, we had, obviously, people who walked into the emergency department. And the Code Brown situation that we were referring to earlier means that the emergency department gets cleared to create the capacity for these new unwell patients. And the way you do that is to create capacity within the hospital itself. Mm-hmm. So that means all the medical patients that are in the hospital have to get moved to another place. All our short-stay patients have to get moved out. All the patients in the waiting room with their ankle injuries have to go somewhere else. Um, all the surgical, elective surgical patients that are waiting their surgery get cancelled. So it's a big all-of-system issue and everyone's involved, all the inpatient units, all the GP communities, all the clinic communities, outpatient services, locums, they're all involved. You're listening to Radiotherapy and we're talking about the thunderstorm asthma event that happened on Monday this week. (laughs) Miss Medic, what did you notice in general practice? Look, I think in general practice, I was working on Tuesday and I think I saw, I see on average sort of 28 patients on my given Tuesday and I think I saw nine of those with the thunderstorm asthma and people were coming in initially quite unsure about what had, certainly a proportion of them unsure about what had happened. Mm -hmm. So people were saying to me, I just got really wheezy or I don't know if I was stressed or like they were unsure. Um, So we had to do a lot of sort of educating of this whole phenomenon. Um, and people were also quite frightened as well about that this could happen and, you know, but I've never had this before and well, could, does this mean it could happen again and what does that mean in terms of being prepared? So that's the kind of stuff that I end up doing a lot of work on and sort of preparing, giving people, you know, teaching them how to use a Ventolin and saying, well, this is sort of, it doesn't mean that you've got asthma that's going to be ongoing, but you are potentially someone susceptible to when this phenomenon happens, particularly if you've got a history of hay fever, which was what I was commonly seeing, patients coming in saying they'd either had a history of mild asthma or um, no asthma, but a history of hay fever. So they seem to be the ones that res- that really were affected. But like Lolly Doc said, it could have happened really to anyone with that load of pollen. Um, and it was interesting because the our, my quite significantly unwell asthma sufferers that are that are on preventers, none of them came in. So people that were on a steroid inhaler were protected from from this event because they are managing their asthma well so that's a really important reminder to those asthmatics in the community just how important it is to stay utilizing your medication mm. to prevent you prevent them from being potentially really at risk in a situation like this mm. we can't spend too much long talking about this but i have to ask it's quite frightening i think as a member of the general public to hear that every single ambulance in in the area was being used and they had to use police cars and fire um fire engines and and all these other additional services to to get people where they needed to be and it makes me wonder are we prepared for these sorts of events i mean you could imagine much more significant events occurring than than this you know and are we prepared? Did we cope? Is there something more that we could have or should be doing? So I guess one of the things that Jill Hennessy, the health minister, announced this week was a review of exactly that question. Um, and so that's the Inspector General of the Emergency Services that's going to undertake that review. Um, as in all disasters, 
um, it's an unexpected event that you can prepare for. One of the interesting things about this is that it went on for so long. So, for example, if you think about a terrorist attack or a plane crash, um, there's often a, I guess, a finite number of people who are injured or, or hurt and then you know, the, there's a huge influx of people and then the event is over and then there's kind of like a, a lull afterwards while you do things. We didn't know how long this would go on for um, and, or when it would end or when we'd stop seeing patients. So um, I guess that's one of the, the things that will come out in the review, um, how best to prepare. And the other thing I think that changes in disasters is that um, we obviously triage ambulances uh, based on the severity of illness. Now, what do you do when everyone's as sick as everyone else? Mm. And I think that's a question that is very difficult to unravel. Miss mm. Medic? I just wanted to say before we close on this, if you were someone affected and haven't gone and seen your GP, it would be a good idea to do so. We'd like to tent spend the time teaching you how to use a Ventolin and those sorts of things so that you could start your management at home should this happen again. Um, it typically does happen in November, isn't that right? It's this sort of spring period, although we have had this weird weird spring, so it could happen into December as well. And also to know that Ventolin is available over the counter. Lots of people don't know that, and that's really important, that you don't need a prescription. You can go and get a Ventolin, but it is important to know how to use it properly. So I would invite anyone that was affected at all, felt a bit short of breath, um, a bit tight with their breathing, a bit wheezy, an irritated cough, all those symptoms are things that could be asthma in this setting and that we'd invite you all to see your GP and learn how to use a Ventolin because, you know, that can make a huge difference. Great advice. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have just been chatting about the thunderstorm asthma event that happened earlier this week, which was very enlightening, I thought. And now we are joined by our two very special guests for the day who are going to tell us all about a new health hub for asylum seekers and refugees that's just opened up a couple of months ago. And our two very special guests are volunteers there. So we're going to hear all about that. But first, let me tell you who these two very special guests are. First, we've got Dr. Debbie Hocking. She's a clinical psychologist, uh, mental health researcher and trained chaplain and musician, which I wish I had known earlier because we would have got her to play the song <laughs> instead of playing it off a boring CD next time. Uh, as a psychologist, Debbie's worked in educational settings and community mental health and drug and alcohol and forensic and corporate sectors. But for the last three years, she's been a postdoctoral research fellow at Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. In this role, she's developed a screening tool to assist non-health workers to identify adult asylum seekers with mental disorders to facilitate referrals for treatment. She's got a particular interest in psychological trauma, which I know will spark Dr Malice's interest, and also in the interface between psychology and social justice. And that has led her to her current research and pro bono clinical work with asylum seekers. As well as Dr Debbie Hocking, we've got Dr Samantha Loy. Uh, 
Now, Sam is a trained old age psychiatrist working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Unit, since January 2015. She's just completed her PhD, congratulations, with the University of Melbourne, and her thesis investigated factors associated with depression in older carers. She's also been involved in volunteer work at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre for the past decade, and she's presented some of this work at a recent congress. She also enjoys living in the inner north, making and eating cakes and ice cream with Debbie. What wonderful guests we have. (laughs) Debbie, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Oh, it's our great pleasure to have you. Uh, I'm so excited to hear about this new health hub for asylum seekers and refugees. And I thought I'd just start by asking you to tell us a bit about what it is and how you got involved. Sure. <clears throat> so um, Sam and I are here in our capacity as um, volunteers, pro bono clinicians at the Cabrini Health Hub, which opened, well, it was launched in April this year. And uh, Sam might talk maybe a little bit more about this, but it was essentially to um, plug a bit of a, a service gap for asylum, asylum seekers predominantly. Um, so there is the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in Footscray and Monash Health has a refugee health clinic. Uh, but there wasn't anything in the in the northwest in that this sort of cor- mm. this corridor. Um, so uh, my boss, Suresh Sundram, psychiatrist, um, had this vision to have a, a dedicated uh, mental health service for asylum seekers. Um, and after many many years, it's <laughs> come to fruition, um, and it's expanded even beyond mental health. So it's now the the health hub, and it's supported by uh, Cabrini and in partnership with St Vincent's Hospital. And so the hub provides completely free physical and mental health services to asylum seekers and refugees. That's correct. Help us understand why we need these free health services. Sure. (laughs) So uh, people may not be aware, and Sam, um, just let me know if you'd like to jump in at any point. Um, uh, may not be aware because of the um, the skew in the media towards um, asylum seekers in who are detained in detention both onshore and offshore, but in fact there are many many more uh, asylum seekers in the community who are on what's called bridging visas uh, while they are waiting for their claim to, claim for asylum to be uh, processed. Mm-hmm. Um, and determined. So there's around 31,000 um, asylum seekers living in the community. Um, and Is that in Victoria or in Australia? So there's about, that's in Australia, on, yeah. on, in Australia, not mm. offshore. Yeah. Um, and around 40% of those are in Victoria. Um, I think around. 10,000, if I've got my stats wow. correct, as of, as, of, as of June. So around 40% of, of those, um, and so these are people on bridging BVE, bridging visa E. Um, so uh, those who are on um, that kind of bridging visa, it's a little bit complicated. I don't want to get, want to get bogged down in the legal um, side of things, but I can certainly... Um, you know, if people are interested, they can I can direct them to the websites to um, explain all the complexities mm-hmm. of that. But essentially, um, those who are on bridging visa E's um, have very limited. Um, they may or may not have work rights, which means that they'd be committing a crime if they um, uh, are working 
and, and found to be working when they don't have work rights. They may or may not have Medicare. Um, and certainly they, asylum seekers don't have access to healthcare cards. So it means that the provision of health um, and mental health services are extremely limited in some cases. And that's um, in addition to um, limited um, access to, you know, material aid, um, legal services, because the funding there has been stripped as well, although Victoria is better situated than many other states and territories, but the federal funding's been pretty much stripped. So they're a very vulnerable, um, disenfranchised um, uh, group. <laughs> they're largely invisible in the community, and so we were trying to... Well, Suresh, you know, his vision was to um, get a service up and running uh, to really um, service, in particular, the health... Uh, mental health but also health needs of this population who don't have access otherwise. So these thousands of asylum seekers who are living in our community, you're saying many of them they're not allowed to work and they don't have access to necessarily access to Medicare cards or healthcare cards. So they can't earn money and they can't access services through our Medicare system. So if if there wasn't this hub, I mean, what does that mean? They just, they're not accessing any healthcare. Destitution. And what we see is, as we know, health and mental health, you know, if it's, if it's, if, it's, if there's not a timely response to that, deteriorates over time. So even those who uh, currently have, or are at the point in their refugee determination at this point in time with the particular policies that we have at this point in time may have access to um, to may have work rights and and Medicare um, that as they um, move through that refugee determination process at some point will be stripped of those so you know when they get to the end of the road in terms of appeals and judicial review that kind of thing there's a point at which um, they lose um, yep, access so therefore they don't have work rights so they can't afford to pay a lawyer to yep. so it, it just has has this domino effect mm. in terms of health and well-being so Sam I might bring you into the conversation yeah can you tell us a bit about the sorts of people that do find out about the health hub and, and, and who you see there. Yeah, sure. So um, as Debbie said before, there's a couple of other health hubs, one located in Footscray and one at Monash Health, and where I guess the Cabrini hub is to look at the northern area. And basically the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in Footscray is the largest centre in, in Australia. So that's probably why many of the asylum seekers actually come to Melbourne or Victoria to seek help. And so often they'll get directed to that area and then they'll, will, I guess, triage them and direct them to the various other services. So that's where they'll come to us. Um, in, in Brunswick. So we've got GPs and psychiatrists and registrars and psychologists as well to try and meet those needs. And as Debbie was saying, there's going to be a many more influx of these people who are going to have worse mental health issues due to the negative pathway. Um, and so they'll have increasing mental health needs and there'll be many more of them. And that's why we're wanting to look for more people to assist us with um, supporting them. And just to um, give you a, a bit of an idea of why we're here and why we're... Um um, exhorting any <laughs> <laughs> clinicians out there who may be interested in volunteering their time, just to put some numbers around that. So it's hard to know, but the projections at the moment, so given that there's uh, around 30,000, 31,000 asylum seekers who are um, uh, in, in the process, on bridging visas, who are in the process of having their applications um, determined, um, like I said before, approximately 40% of those are in Victoria, a large proportion of those are in Melbourne, um, and around 50% will be on that negative pathway um, that, that, that Sam was talking about. So that means that essentially they will have exhausted all their legal um, appeal options and basically will be 
essentially waiting to be deported. Mm. But this can take many months. So we're looking at, you know, people who are very vulnerable without any access to um, services for a protracted period mm. of time on top of the protracted period of time that they were waiting, waiting anyway. For, yeah. Yeah, yep. during that process up to that point, mm. which can be many years. Uh, Debbie and Sam, I imagine that um, these group of people bring with them a, a burden of um, significant uh, trauma, um, probably lots of post-traumatic stress, um, depression, anxiety, um, and I guess their baseline level of all of those things starts off lower than the general community. Yeah, that, look, that's correct. So basically... A lot of these people, I guess, in the community, they may have come not by boat, but you're exactly right. So you've come, they've come to seek a better opportunities for their family. They've often left their family behind. They're experiencing a lot of guilt about not being there. If they're not able to work, they're very dependent on charities and that erodes self-esteem and confidence. Um, and then this ongoing protracted um, applications for asylum can also cause acute mental health, depression, anxiety. can be really difficult. So... You're absolutely right. They're at a lower level and then ongoing sort of rejections and um, having to seek help is, is really difficult. And so they become even more depressed or anxious and become very desperate, especially when they come to this negative pathway. I think it can sometimes, I mean, at least I find it overwhelming to think about the, the number of people experiencing the, these challenges and, and how we help them. And I know that you're part of the reason you're on air is because you're calling for healthcare practitioners who might be interested in working for just a few hours at a time um, in a pro bono setting um, such as this to help asylum seekers. Uh, can you, do you have in mind one particular case or a story i think sometimes to hear one person's story can can stay with you more than the vast numbers that sometimes feel overwhelming yeah, yeah. sam um yeah you could probably call to mind <laughs> sure and, and i guess in answering to your question is that there is a lot of people and i guess you can feel quite sort of overwhelmed i guess it's about you know you can do your little bit and i guess that can add to the um, to the assistance which is required, but in talking about a case, um, there's been this lady who's about 30. I've been seeing for about four or five years. She's been in Australia for four or five years from Nigeria, and I won't go into details about the circumstances or why she came. But needless to say, she initially came and had work rights and study rights, and she trained to be a Div Two nurse and was working as an agency nurse. Um, but throughout this time, she's been obviously appealing for asylum and had a number of rejections at various stages, and so. Although she's relatively stable and able to work, she's obviously had acute mental health issues which have been related to these ongoing rejections and waiting. And so with her, we see a lot of symptoms common in many asylum seekers. So a number of depressive symptoms such as poor sleep, um, not interested in doing things, and at times she doesn't want to go to work. But many somatic symptoms. So we see lots of headaches and um, back pain. And you know she's even had almost conversion-type symptoms where she thinks she's had a stroke because she feels numb and she can't breathe. So she's attended emergency departments departments for that. Um, so this has been going on for quite a while and a couple of weeks ago um, she informed me that she just come from the Department of Immigration and been told, look, that's it, you're going to have to go back. There's no more appeals. Um, so she was obviously really distressed and probably quite shocked when I saw her. She came straight from the department to see me at, at, at Brunswick. Um, and so she wasn't really presenting in a similar way as I'd seen her previously, but I knew that this was just because she was in shock. So I had to refer her to the local CAT team and spoke to her, her friends about referring her also. And what subsequently happened is, contrary to her previous presentations where she's gone to emergency and sought help, she's actually not done that. So they've actually become quite 
um, her friends have become very upset. She's actually now voicing suicidal ideation, which she never did previously. And so they've had to contact the cat services and they've phoned me to talk about her. And um, really sadly, she's not attended any of her more recent appointments with myself or her counsellor or her legal people. So we actually don't know what's happened to her. And her phone's been off. She's not answering her emails. So it's quite a worry. And I think this probably paints a picture about what's happening and what's going to happen to a lot more people. So she's been told she's got to go back, but she doesn't know when, what date, and what's going to happen in the meantime and how she can get the money to actually do those things. So I guess that's the kind of people we're looking at supporting, and there'll be many more of these people in the future, I'm afraid. Uh, Deb and Sam, as we're listening, I mean, uh, certainly here in the studio, my heart's sinking with each minute as it goes by, and uh, being overwhelmed is a certain point where you can't sink any further, and what I do is take notes, obviously, to try to keep on track, but I'm very aware I'm on the verge of detaching from concern. Now, is that point where, as you say, a woman who's doing everything humanly possible, she's under your care for four or five years, you see the system that she's in is actually no longer able to be responsive to her needs. Uh, Could I ask how you cope in that as the person who is actually mandated by society as a psychiatrist to look after this sort of person with these changing conditions how do you cope that's a really good question it's um it can be quite overwhelming at times and i guess you can feel very hopeless and helpless at the situation that you can't necessarily change what's going on and i know that you know one could say well look if you just give them a visa maybe all their mental health issues would disappear but i know it's not as simple as that because as um, we mentioned before there's a whole lot of preceding difficulties but i guess it's about um, looking after yourself um, and we have regular peer supervision. So as a group, um, all the psychiatrists and, and registrars will, will come together and talk about difficult cases and what we need to do and, and talk about how we can support each other. And I guess very importantly, also at the hub, there's a whole lot of um, nurses who may not necessarily have been exposed to that type of mental health issues. So it's about giving them supervision. But, um, yeah, I think it's it's really difficult and you can really feel quite you know sad and you could you can detach yourself and not think about well it's not worth anything but i think um you know i guess this is important to me and so i I guess you know i'm able to keep doing it and i still find a real passion of mine well i'm relieved to hear that the system has in place the peer and supervisory and uh, support systems i just wonder because in so many other areas of mental health the new buzzword in a way but it's actually a, a much more serious than a buzzword is the trauma informed care and whether trauma informed care has made an inroad to this particular service as it has to many other services because when you mention things like your patient becoming numb can't breathe Mm. and then moves from so-called depression which we'll leave open for the moment but then suicidality whether that's coming from a depressive position or a trauma position Mm. could have very different management points yeah look so the question whether trauma-informed care is anywhere in the system that's a really good question. I'm not sure if I can, you know, correctly answer that. Um, do you know, Deb? Uh, one, 
I, I'm not sure this is directly responds to your question, Alice, but um, one of the uh, reasons why um, this service is important is it's um, not just to plug a geographical gap but also a systemic gap. So there's the area mental health services, which are really good with the crisis intervention, um, and then there's uh, torture trauma-specific services like Foundation House, um, which often have long waiting lists and not um, everyone is eligible for. Um, so I guess they'd be more across the trauma-informed care kind of models than the area mental health service. Um, but what I guess the, the, the patients that we are trying to, um, to um, service are those who um, fall between those two systems. Um, so obviously where there's acute, you know, Sam mentioned the calling the CAT, the crisis assessment team for, for, for this um, young woman. Um, but then, you know, the, the crisis is averted perhaps and then they go back to business as usual so of course there needs to be this continuity that other services aren't um, providing so we're hoping at Cabrini and it is a new newish service so we're still um, getting things on track we will eventually have kind of a wraparound um, and um, an out yeah. Can you remind yeah. me what it's called? Specialist mental yeah, health. Yeah. So what, what Suresh's vision is to have what would be Australia's first um, specialist outreach asylum seeker service, which would be really, really important. So this would include a psychiatrist and a mental health nurse and a social worker who would actually be able to do outreach, who'd be able to go out and actually see the most acutely, most vulnerable, unwell people. So people who won't come in, they could go out and see mm. that particular person. And also. Um, what we do know is that because asylum seeker services are so stretched, often when people do receive their visa, often, unfortunately, they have to be let go. Yes. So we also plan to be able to bridge that gap of transitioning. Right. So asylum seekers who have obtained protection visa or a TPV, we can look after them, support them whilst they transition into, I guess, general services for adults mm. in, in, in country. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. It's 15 minutes to 11 o'clock and we're talking with Dr Debbie Hocking and Dr Samantha Loy about the pro bono clinic, the asylum seeker and refugee health hub that is uh, currently existing in Brunswick. As I hear you talk about that specific case of the woman uh, and the work that you're doing, I I have this uh, dual reaction going on. You know, one is this this deep sadness, and you know, I'm I'm brought to tears hearing that story, and and the other is this intense relief that you guys are doing what you're doing and that at least we're making a start and there's there's something that's being offered um how are you doing in terms of the services meeting the needs and and what do you need how can we help that's been thrown to me thanks sam um <laughs> so uh we we would like you to um contact us if you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist um who ideally have had experience in some or capacity not. <laughs> or <laughs> not mm, um would yeah. you like to expand yeah. on that, so i guess from my experience i started my volunteer work at the asylum seeker center when i was a first year psychiatry so registrar mm. so i had probably very little experience in psychiatry and in asylum seeking mental health and I can't say of course I'm an expert but um, we provide as psychiatrists lots of supervision you will sit in with make sure that you've got a psychiatrist on board and have someone you can talk to and we'll be on tap if there's any issues and obviously looking at the cases talking about them and trying to having I guess having more perhaps straightforward cases if possible to start off with 
Um, so talking psychiatry registrars, that's right. not necessarily that's, consultants. That's right. yes. um, and I guess as a consultant, you might think, well, look, I don't have any experience, but I don't think that really matters. I think having an interest as and a, a passion... As a registrar. Oh, as a psychiatrist, you may not be interested, you may not have any experience in mental health or asylum seekers or refugees, but I don't think that doesn't mean you have any experience. I mean, you're going to be seeing high prevalence disorders, depression, anxiety. You know the system. It's, it's not going to be too difficult. Mm. Um, yeah, we, we volunteer on a semi-regular basis and... Mm. And it can be a great, great um, antidote, um, just to pick up on Malice's point about the detachment. I think with the climate, for those of us who um, do care about what's going on but feel silenced quite a bit by the mainstream media and, you know, the, the policies that keep rolling out, we can feel a bit sort of overwhelmed by despair, which can often parallel that experience of our patients. Um, so one, um, one way um, that can counter that is actually to do something. And we can't save everyone's life. That's in a bit grandiose <laughs> but um, there's something about that relationship with the person that you're working with that can give this sense of well I you know the attachment even if it might be for, for a short time um, that can be a sense of well there is something I am actually doing mm. even if it's for you know a, a few hours a fortnight mm. or, or what have you mm. so yeah. So the Health Hub is in Brunswick. Uh, the the number to call, which is the number for anyone interested in attending or going, is eight three double eight seven eight seven four. Just to give you that number again, it's eight three double eight seven eight seven four, and that's the Health Hub for Asylum Seekers and Refugees located in Brunswick. There's a website which we've already got on our Facebook page, and if you did a quick search on the internet, I'm sure you would find it easily. So the call goes out to not just psychologists and psychiatrists, but GPs, any nurses, any health workers that could Why provide. Why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come, come all. Yeah, come, come on, come us. all. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for joining us today to talk about it. It's a great privilege to hear about. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank we, you, and we thank you on behalf of our patients and the asylum seekers. Yeah, thank you. Just listen to this. <laughs> You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with myself, Dr. Autonomy, Miss Medic, Lolly Doc, Dr. Malice and our two very wonderful special guests this morning, Dr. Debbie Hocking and Dr. Samantha Loy. We've just been hearing about the work that these two people do at the pro bono clinic for asylum seekers and refugees and I think the intensity of the work was not lost on any of us hearing about uh, that, that particular case study. So to round out the show today for the last 10 minutes, we're going to go to you, Dr. Malice, and uh, have a bit of a talk about what it's like as a health professional working in these very intense areas where trauma is part of what you're hearing about and how self-care can factor in. Well, I think there could be, in a way, no better introduction than having heard Deb and Sam describe what it is that they do, the setting and the system and the context in which they do it. And as you yourself, Autonomy, said that you have a dual reaction. On the one hand, if any of us have any empathy, this is where empathy gets stirred to the point of tears and being overwhelmed. And at the same time, surprisingly, there's gratitude of there are people who can and do and make commitments at this level now, I don't want to over-dramatise it, and I don't think it is. It is of the same level of catastrophe as we heard earlier about the thunderstorm asthma. Lives are at risk. 
Now, that's not an area that we often like to identify and talk about, and we even heard that the so-called Brown Code is controversial for the non-funny reasons, that it underlines the very reality that there's a catastrophe going on within our own relationships. Now, that's where trauma becomes really problematic. It's one thing when you think about an event... You know, as uh, Lollidop said, you know, a, a terrible event with a, a terrorist attack or a plane crash. The event is over and then people mobilise. But what about here and indeed in asthma where there's a process that it is ongoing? It's a chain reaction or domino effect, whichever metaphor you want. But it doesn't have an end point. And if I can really add to the angst, which is not the intention, but to map out the landscape, this is generational it actually gets passed on both in the generations of the survivors of these asylum-seeking situations and indeed in our profession. That is, our profession generationally passes on the coping mechanisms of previous generations. Now, the question is, what's the previous generation's coping mechanism? Well, to intellectualise it. We have trauma as... um, an event, and no one wants to know about the relationship impact of trauma. No one wants to hear about the generational impact, but in fact, after 9-11, we know that mums who were pregnant, not even, the babies weren't even exposed to the event, but with the new science of epigenetics and transfer of trauma, we know the science of what actually goes on in transmission. Now, why should it be any different for us as the professionals? We are human beings, as you said, autonomy, empathically attuned and connected. And what this relationship triggers is our survival instincts. And here, the so-called detachment is actually a sign that we've reached. And as I said, I myself, listening, was conscious of almost reaching the point of detachment, just listening. But of course, it's not just listening. We are witnessing being in that consulting room and resonating to the despair, the stress, the shock, the awe, the overwhelmed situation of a 30-year-old Nigerian woman who's doing everything within her power to become a a nurse, to, to work in the system, and despite all that, she's going numb. Now, that is the point when she is detached. She's no longer depressed, Depression is a luxury of an emotion, if I can put it that way. When you're in survival mode, you don't have luxuries of emotions. You have sensations. You're on a totally different register of human experience. And numbness is where you've lost your sensation of being you. It is actually one of the cardinal symptoms of stress and trauma. I mean, uh, detachment and dissociation was the bottom line defense for trauma. Now, if you're sitting across the room from someone, we now know from our literature that there's a condition called dissociative attunement. So if you're empathically tuned into someone suffering, you're going to tune into them dissociating and you attune and you dissociate and you go numb. And this is why it was such a relief to hear that there's supervision, there's consultation, there's informal support networks, because that is the very survival reversal. If, if survival instinct is about keeping survival going and you provide the 20 seconds of contact at the point where this Nigerian woman 
is struggling for her breath, another symptom, by the way. Breathlessness in that situation would be close to panic attacks. Depersonalizing, which is numbing about your selfhood as a person. And derealization, which is numbing about your place in society. And these are cardinal features of trauma and a trauma-informed care approach to these situations. Lollidoc. Malice, do you think that um, one, one of the things that you hear a lot in uh, current descriptions of society and where we're kind of trending is is a, a, a loss of community and cohesion? And do you think that's a, a sign, if you like, of uh, shared dissociation to, to community trauma or to... to Lollidock, if I can just take a step back out of the clinical consulting room we just heard about and look to the American system and talk about PTSD. Uh, I'm on a, a listserv for American psychologists, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, and I posted to them uh, what seemed an innocent uh, article from our local newspaper with a picture of Trump and Obama in the White House. This article highlighted their body language one being despondent, the other triumphant and so on, I posted it and got back the message that I was off topic. And I thought, well, this is, I mean, trauma and body language and the country's going through trauma. This is obviously on topic from my point of view. So I talked with a very, very trusted, reliable friend, and he said, well, you know, you're familiar with patients being in PTSD, but have you ever thought that the therapists are now going through their own PTSD, which is post-Trump stress disorder? <laughs> <laughs> and we may chuckle at this, but this is what the listserv was all about. I've got pa- that this is what the listserv essentially said. I've got patients coming in this afternoon, and I don't know how I'm going to cope with their childhood abuse and trauma when I've got President-elect Trump... <laughs> Uh, to worry about. Now, this is really when the therapist or counsellor is in the trauma situation with the client or patient. You asked a broader question about a whole nation. Now, from my position here in Australia, posting something about, you know, photographs and uh, a narrative about body language, understanding the two most powerful human beings in the world, and what are they communicating beyond their language? That is subverbally, gesture, posture, eye signals, the tone of the voice, prosody. This is where trauma-informed therapy and counselling comes in, to shift the focus from the language to things like this poor Nigerian woman who talks about being numb. That is trauma-informed therapy. Now, it seems that there are many colleagues of mine who are in the States who I respect greatly. This is not in a way a criticism. It's a description of the magnitude of their own PTSD. So the question in the later uh, thread was, how do we take care of ourselves? Now, ordinary taking care would be, you know, you have the supervision and so on. Uh, and then have yoga, dancing, music, and uh, your own sustenance. The Not all at the same time, because that could be awkward. Well, there are some... Yeah, Why? all right, let's, let's do it serially. But the point here is that, in fact, trauma-informed care suggests that we have to take care of ourselves in the session, not so much between. But what do we do in the session? Are we aware when we go numb? And this is, if we are, then we shuffle around in the chair. I've got my Fitbit and I know when 
I go near numb, I check where my pulse is, and it goes down to nearly 45, 50, and I'm certainly not fit. That is my dissociative autonomic nervous system. So trauma-informed care is an essential new way to incorporate into such self-care measures. And I just wish you great success in, in the work that you do. And I think we're all feeling humbled uh, in your presence that you do do this. And you may not realise how overwhelming it is, but it is humbling for us. We have to finish there, unfortunately. Uh, that's it for us today on Radiotherapy. Dr Malice, thank you for that beautiful segment to round up. Lolly Doc and Miss Medic, always a pleasure. And extra special thanks to our two guests, Dr Debbie Hocking and Dr Samantha Loy, who work at the Asylum Seeker and Refugee Health Hub in Brunswick. More information on our Facebook page. Stay tuned because Einstein Agogo is coming up immediately and we will see you again next week on Radiotherapy at 10 o'clock. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.